0: All right. Good morning, you guys. Uh, That weather outside is just amazing, right? We talk about Minnesota ice in this series, and that Minnesota ice is uh, starting to melt away, and hopefully starting to melt away with us, too. Uh, There's a few people, it looks like, that I haven't met yet, and so if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Caitlin, and I'm one of the campus pastors over at Bethel University, Uh, and I'm so excited to get to have a chance over these these few weeks to spend time with you while uh, Pastor Phil recovers. Uh, so, I, I need you to know something about me. I feel like this has been like a little bit of a confessional on Sunday morning so far, just because you don't know me. I don't know you yet, so feel free to to tell me all of your deepest, darkest secrets as well. But um, i I know just enough about sports to be dangerous, right? Like I, I don't know a lot about sports, but I know enough about sports to be like, yeah, we should totally go to a game. Oh man, I love the Saints, all of that. But what I don't know is I don't know enough about sports to actually be a fan of any team, which has become a little problematic working at a college campus because I think it was like the first week of me being on the job, and like these two guys come to my office and they're like, they're like, we gotta know, and I'm like, all right, what do you gotta know? And they're like, we gotta know, Vikings or Packers, and I was like, crap, I just like, and so I said, I said the Bears, right? Because that just felt like a really good neutral option. And it was the only thing I could think of in the moment. So I said the Bears. But then what What became problematic was like every Friday that I would run into them in the cafeteria, they would be like, it's going to be a good game this weekend. I was like, Absolutely. <laughs> It is uh, who we play in, you know? And it got so bad that we were getting closer to playoff and they would be like, oh, this weekend's game. And I was like, this weekend's game is about right, you know? So it really taught me like this, this moment of humility that I just, I, I don't know sports. And so this past weekend I'm at the Super Bowl party, you know, and some of you guys might have had your own little Super Bowl gatherings. And I'm like, sitting there watching it like I know what's happening you know and the guy next to me had placed some bets and so he was like oh if he makes 13 yards I was like I I hope he makes 13 yards I don't know how long 13 yards is I don't know how he runs the 13 yards and then they were like he ran back one yard I was like it works that way too like like Football just became a math problem, you know? So it was really confusing for me, uh, but not as confusing as football was for my friend Adrian in seminary. My friend Adrian, uh, he had immigrated from Liberia to go to seminary here at Bethel in Minnesota. And he said to me one day, he's like, I just watched football. And I was like, dude, I know, right? Like, mind blown. And he's like, I didn't get it. And I was like, word, I also, I don't understand football. And he goes, yeah, I'm watching it. And I turned to my friend, and, and they were at US Bank Stadium. He goes, I turned to my friend and I go, so you guys just watch these guys like stand in a circle and talk? Like is that, that's the game? And he's like, no, no, that's the huddle. You, you don't watch the huddle. You watch what actually happens on the field. And Adrian's saying, and I'm like, Adrian, you, you better just keep preaching here, right? Because it made me get this moment. Like what we do here on Sunday mornings, it's really important, <laughs> What we do here on Sunday mornings, gathering together, spending time in the Word together, encouraging each other, spending time face-to-face, that's really important. But the rest of the world typically doesn't see what happens here on Sunday mornings. The rest of the world gets to see what we do on the field. And and that's how they judge how the game is going, right? I mean, they don't get to usually get a a front row seat into um, your relationships with each other here in the church or, or the really good message on Sunday or the great worship or anything like that. The front row seat that they get is to what actually happens on the field. There's an author I love, her name's Amy Sherman, and she puts it this way. She says, our churches should operate less like cruise ships and more like aircraft carriers, right? Not that we come here and we get entertained and we hear a really good message or, or we get good music. And, and even though that's really important, the important part is that it goes out and it launches people into the world to actually get on the field and to play the game. So if all eyes are on us and when people don't see as much what we do in the huddle, they don't know what the teaching is, some of them don't even know what scripture says or or how we read it together, and they don't see the worship or they don't see the one-on-one time that we spend with each other, they don't see the huddle, what better demonstration is there that we get who Christ is than what we do in our day-to-day lives? And not even just our day-to-day lives and the, okay, I have these eight hours at work or I have this time at home with my family, but in our day-to-day lives and the way that we interact in the grocery store and at Starbucks and the way that we interact at the post office or at our mailboxes or with our neighbors or our coworkers or our family, those are the moments when people get what it means to be in Christ. You see, here's what science tells us about the world that we live in now. Loneliness is a new epidemic. I mean, loneliness has gotten so severe and has such negative health consequences that they literally are calling it a loneliness epidemic. People are more lonely than ever. And the health risk of loneliness, it's equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And loneliness, it increases our mortality risk by 26%. So if it's an epidemic, and if there are people in your workplace or people that you come across when you're doing your day-to-day life, or people in your neighborhood who are that lonely, that's negatively impacting their health, why not find ways to actually reach out to them? Why not be the church that breaks loneliness the best? Why not be a place and a people who actually bring people into true community? Not only just because we think it's good for their health, but because we actually think it's good for us as people, to be in community with each other, and to have people who love and care about us a lot. A few years ago, I I was doing some research on loneliness and how the church can help, and and I just thought about this idea, uh, and and it's not only just an idea that I've seen, but sort of this idea that science has seen, where they said, having people who see you regularly actually decreases your risk of death, because those are the people that are going to say things like, Hey, you look like you're not feeling well, or or, hey, I just noticed this bruise on the the side of your shoulder. What's what's up with that? They're the people who are actually going to start asking questions about your real life and maybe helping you get help, right? And so why not be the people who get community the best? Why shouldn't the church be the ones that are out on the field day in and day out, actually showing people what it looks like to be loved? And that's the whole reason behind this series that we're in right now, talking about Minnesota ice to to sort of break the awkwardness and actually create true community. Because we live in a state that's really good at Minnesota nice, but isn't always good at actually creating real community. And we live in communities that are increasingly becoming more divided and more divisive and and more private with people's lives and and lonelier. and, And it's hard for people to actually see how to create true community for themselves sometimes. And so it starts with us. So in a world where loneliness is reigning, I want to talk this morning about service. Because service at its exact core is saying to somebody, I see you and I see your need and I'm committing right now to do something about it. Service is knowing the other person and acting on what they need. So in a self-centered world, in a world that's increasingly lonely, Serving one another with love is a surprise. And it's a blessing to the people around us. I mean, how many of you guys are surprised when somebody serves you with something, right? like surprise when somebody puts away your cart at the store, surprised when somebody shovels for you, or surprise when somebody just drops by with something. It's a surprise, and in that moment you feel blessed by the actions of this other person. They've done something that actually makes a real difference in their lives, and so let's talk a little bit about it. So just as serving is surprising for us today, serving was really surprising for Jesus's followers too, and they lived in a very different world than we did now, right? They didn't have Twitter. I always think it would be like really wild if like some of those disciples had Twitter, and I really never want to read Paul. Paul's tweets Like, I think Paul would just be, like, tagging churches like crazy and just calling people out, right? So, so they lived in a very different world. There was no social media. There was no Twitter. There, there wasn't these things distracting them. And yet, serving was a really big surprise, especially when Jesus served the disciples. So today's passage, it comes to us from the Gospel of John. And if you turn with me to John chapter 13, it's a passage that, that many of you probably know, but I want to dive a little deeper into it. The setting for this passage, it's one of the last meals that Jesus had with his disciples before Jesus's crucifixion. It's one of the times that he gathered with them to have real conversations about what had happened and what was going to happen. And so, starting in verse 1 in John 13, it says this. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean and you are clean. Not all of you, or not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now I have to be honest. This passage for me is always a little uncomfortable to read, and here's why. So when I was in second grade, we acted out this passage in Sunday school. Any of you guys ever do that? You ever acted out in Sunday school? Uh, I was a teacher's pet. That's another true confession about my life. I was a teacher's pet, right? And, and so I always sat right next to the teacher, and my teacher at the time was probably about like 83 years old. I don't know if she was actually that old, but she felt that old to me, right? And, and we get this thing ready, and we're like, we're going to read scripture together. I'm like, yeah. They're like, we're going to wash each other's feet. I'm like, Okay you're gonna wash the feet of the person to your left. I'm like, no, no, we're not, right? And so we get these whipped cream basins ready and I'm just like, come on. And, and I just have this really vivid memory <laughs> Of like the 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 horror of having to like wash this old woman's feet as like a child, right? And I remember like learning what bunions were for the first time at lunch afterwards. And and it was just this moment that was really uncomfortable. And and so foot washing for us feels really radical. Like every once in a while I'll have people in like my face circles that say like we washed each other's feet at our wedding, and I'm like, dang, like that is that is a moment, that's an experience, right? It is radical to think about washing each other's feet. I've had to do it in a few moments since. And you always make that uncomfortable eye contact with people right before you do it. And you almost create like a secret pact. Like, I'll wash yours if you wash mine so that no we don't have to do anyone else's, right? It's an uncomfortable act. And foot washing in the time of Jesus, it was just as uncomfortable and just as radical. So first, I want you to imagine that the disciples have been on this journey with Jesus. And there's no cars, right? You're not right driving cars around, and it's pretty hard for you to go and get a donkey or or something else to ride it with 12 people with you. And so they've been traveling by foot, sometimes in homemade shoes and sometimes barefoot, everywhere they have went. I mean, in the summers, you guys know when you wear sandals and you get home at the end of the day and you think you got a nice tan, but it's actually dirt. Imagine that for the disciples for hours and days at a time. And in the ancient world, touching each other's feet, it was seen as menial slave work, and it was primarily an assignment that was given to the Gentile slaves and to women. Those were the people who washed feet. And most meals at that time, they were eaten by leaning on one arm, essentially on your stomach, with your feet facing away from the table. So you could kind of ignore each other's feet, right? You didn't really have to pay attention to it. But Jesus, in the midst of all of this, breaks the mold. He's this rabbi and this man who engages in this activity with his disciples, and he makes it really hard to ignore what he's doing. One commentary that I read said that this is literally the only example in literature of the ancient world, pre-Jesus, where foot washing by a leader ever occurs. In every other instance, in other documents, when they talk about foot washing, it's always a slave or a woman doing it. This is the first time that a male leader is washing the feet of his disciples And not only does Jesus wash his feet, but he actually removes his clothing, and he takes a towel and wraps it around his waist in the style of a servant, and then he uses that same towel to wipe the feet of the disciples, and don't think about that one too long. So Jesus, this rabbi and this man, and God at that, he actually breaks the customs and the mold of that time in order to wash his disciples' feet, for them to experience what it's like for a leader to wash their feet as a servant. And he demonstrates humility and servanthood in that moment. You see, this passage teaches us something important. It teaches us that serving with love, it is not a suggestion, right? It's not a suggestion that we serve one another. This passage is a part of a larger story of the Last Supper, which begins with this phrase, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it concludes at the end with this in verses 34 through 35, which we didn't get to yet. It says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. Jesus says by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now the type of love that Jesus is describing here is the same one that it talks about him feeling and experiencing at the start, that he loved them to the end. That knowing what was coming next, the only thing on the forefront of his mind was how much he loved and cared for this ragtag group he had gathered together. This new commandment, it's it's summing up the entire passage of what Jesus just did. What Jesus does in this passage, this radical service, it's not a suggestion, but it's actually a command to his disciples that if you love one another, you will humble yourself as a servant. You'll do whatever necessary to care for each other in this moment. There's no way to explain away service as unneeded or kind of just a benefit of living the Christian life. Service is as crucial to Christian existence as scripture reading, as showing up and participating in community, as confessing to each other and repenting of our sins, and as a personal relationship with Jesus. If we are followers of Jesus, we get out and we serve. And serving with love, it doesn't just mean serving the people that we like. That's easy. That's like, that's like easy mode discipleship, right? Like if you want to do discipleship easy, just serve the people you like. And just be friends with the people you like and just spend time in community with the people you like and never be bothered by the people you don't like, right? I mean, that is easy mode discipleship, but that's actually not even true discipleship. That's just the easy way to do life. So whenever we do scripture, a thing I like to do when I'm reading it with people in community is to note who is and who is not there. So in this story, you have Jesus and you have the whole of the 12 disciples. You have Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew, who they sometimes call Nathaniel, and James the Younger, and Jude and Matthew and Philip and Simon and Thomas and Judas. The person that Jesus knows just days later is going to betray him and lead him to his death. And it says that in that passage that he knew what was coming next. Immediately following verse 1, which talks about how Jesus loved his own till the end, it says that the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So he already knew what was coming, and yet he loved him to the end. A few years ago when I was talking about this story in some community at, at the church that I attended before I started working at Bethel, I, um, I had a conversation with somebody and, and they said, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of research into this passage in seminary and I actually, I came to the conclusion that that I actually think that, uh, that Judas was right next to Jesus, that Judas might have been one of the first feet to get washed. He said, you know, when you look at the story and when you look at the way the story is told in other places, there's just too much evidence that says that Judas might have been one of the first people who had his feet washed by Jesus. Judas wasn't the afterthought in service, but he was among the first to be touched and blessed by Jesus. So here's what I want us to think about for a moment. And and I want us to think about this in practical terms, right? We talked last week about how it becomes way easier to love people when we actually think about them practically and not just as my neighbors or my coworkers or my family, when we actually give them names and faces, when we remember who the person is. So think about this for a moment. Who are the people who are most difficult for you to serve with love? And I'm guessing that as soon as I say that, a name might come to mind or a face might come to mind of somebody where you go, man, that person, you know, their Facebook posts just irk me. The the way they act in the workplace, it just bothers me. They got that promotion that I really wanted. It's really hard at the gym when I run into them because they just kind of get on my nerves. That person in my family, it's been a really painful relationship that I'm still working to repair. I'm guessing names and faces came to mind for you. And the invitation in that is to trust Jesus in the service, to trust the one who showed us and modeled for us what it looks like, for us to serve people with love, even when it's people who are just about ready to betray us. Scripture calls it like this. It says, it says that serving somebody like that, it's like heaping burning coals on their head, right? That, that the, the pain in that moment isn't yours to bear anymore. You're serving somebody, and it's actually going to be more difficult for them to accept service from you than it is in most cases to give that service. And so how do we serve the people that are most difficult for us to serve with love? The other thing we learn in this passage is that serving with love, it's just as much about heart as it is about our actions. So as Jesus radically serves the disciples, Peter objects. This starts in verse 6, if you want to follow along. He says this in 6 through 10. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, well then Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's already completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. And so he has this conversation with Peter where Peter thinks it's all about the action, right? Peter is like, Lord, you're, you're the leader. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You're, you're God. You're the one that we've been following. You're our rabbi. You're our teacher. You cannot wash my feet. He says, you know, that's, that's not even, that's, that's, that's against sort of our moral code. You, can, you can't touch my feet as the leader. I, I should be washing your feet, right? He has this conversation with Jesus where every time that Jesus says, let me just wash them, just give in to this moment. Peter says, no, Lord, you can't do that. And if you're going to do that, then you better wash my head and also my hands, too. You, you should wash my whole body. But Jesus continues to push back on, on Peter and continues to say to him, just let me wash your feet. Accept the moment of this service. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I actually uh, only took Hebrew in seminary. Um, the story behind why I took Hebrew is because in 2013, I went to Israel and I ordered a supreme pizza, and I got a pizza with olives and pickles on it. Um, And so I was like, you know what, I'm never going to do that again, so I need to learn Hebrew so I can go and order a pizza, right? So I took Hebrew. I didn't take Greek. But here's what other people who do know Greek have said about this text. It says in the original Greek, the two words that are used here are similar but different. It's this word, this nip time, which means wash, and leween, which means bathed. And in the New American Commentary, this expert in John, Gerald R. Bochert, he says this. He says, Jesus' play on words thus suggests that Peter misunderstood the meaning of the foot washing to be a mere washing of feet, whereas the washing was, in fact, so much more. It actually refers to Jesus's bathing of the disciples with a new perspective. The purpose wasn't the foot washing. It was what the disciples were learning in that moment about who Jesus is and what they were called to. So when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus's radical servanthood, we follow in a leader who has shown us that there is so much more than the mere act of service in the moment, that there's actually lessons that are being passed on in the middle of the action. When we meet each other's needs and we serve one another with love, we're communicating so much deeper than just doing an action for the people around us. When we shovel a neighbor's driveway, it gives them peace of mind. I learned this winter for the first time, this might be some, something everybody else knew, but I didn't know. I learned for the, for the first time this winter that shoveling our sidewalks is important because it lets people in our community that have trouble with, with ability actually pass through our sidewalks. Like it, It's loving our neighbors to be able to say, my sidewalk is clear for you to be able to pass by as you go to work or as you go to the store wherever you go. It gives people peace of mind and it actually lets people know you care about them. Bringing a meal to a neighbor who lost a relative or a friend, it demonstrates comfort, right? It says, I I hear you. Let me take care of dinner for right now. Helping a coworker with a difficult project, in a lot of cases, it demonstrates sacrificial love, doesn't it? To be able to say, okay, this project might be easy for me, or, or you know what, this is in your job description, but I'll help as a way of sacrificially loving and caring about you in this moment and putting our needs as a company above just my desires. Teaching a family member something new, it gives them knowledge. I've gotten to watch a lot of, like, my generation teach, like, their grandparents to text and use iPhones. And I'm like, you know what, though? They didn't have anything like that when they were kids, right? So, so it might be irritating to go, okay, I have to teach you how to do this, and now you're FaceTiming me, and now, now it's super confusing, right? It's really hard. But it demonstrates in that moment this desire to say, I want to teach you how to do something to connect with me. I want to give you a new way to actually get to know our family. I want you to be able to get pictures of grandkids, to be able to teach them that task. Serving with care, therefore, it's just as much about our heart in the moment as it is about the action that we're doing. And what we're doing, it communicates more than just a simple action to the world around us. You see, we serve with care, to go back to a a football metaphor, I think. We serve with care. Because we know where we stand in the lineup. We know where we stand in the lineup. The entire passage, it builds up to Jesus' words in verses 12 through 17, where he says this, when he washed their feet and he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place, he said to them, I just noticed for the first time that it says when he resumed his place, when he goes back to the head of the table where he started, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and you call me Lord, which is right. Because I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, if I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, we all know that we're not greater than the master. We all know that, that in the lineup, that we're following directions from somebody who knows better and does better. We know where we fall in the lineup, and so we serve because we know that the best way to be a part of this team is to follow the master and to do his will and to follow in his footsteps. I always use the example of Jesus when I'm working with students to say, like, do you think that he doesn't know best, Right? I mean, this is the God that created the universe. This is the God that created everything in it. It's the God that created you and me. And and I would be darned to say that he doesn't know best how to make things work. That he doesn't know best what life is meant to look like when it's lived fully. That he doesn't know best what it looks like for us to have relationship with each other. Jesus knows best. He knows exactly how this whole world is supposed to function when it functions at its peak. And so when he gives us an example, it would do us so well to follow what he does. So we follow a God who radically serves. We follow a God who literally steps up from his place at the table and moves to the position of a servant, who who actually lays down all of his clothes and puts on a towel to remind them that he's serving them in this moment, who gets vulnerable with the disciples and washes their feet. And then once that work is done, only then does he go back into the position of authority. Because in that moment, he stooped to the level of a servant to show them what it actually looked like to have authority in that moment, and to show them what it looked like to be the leader. You see, all throughout this series, we're talking about what it looks like to love our neighbors. And at the very beginning, I encouraged you that, that loving your neighbor is as simple as getting to know them. And then last week, we talked about how loving your neighbor is as simple as listening to them. And loving your neighbor can be as simple as serving them, too. You see, we have to be intentional about how we neighbor, because we, we live in a world where it's increasingly become easier to do things on autopilot, where it's become easier to move into the neighborhood and, and spend time with your family and then go, to go to work and spend time with the coworkers that are like you and then afterwards to go out and meet up with some friends who are like you. And what does it look like for us to break that mold and to intentionally love the people who are the least like us or to love the people who are maybe the most difficult to love or get to know? And so I want to encourage you, this week, to think about some ideas of how you could love or serve your coworkers or your neighbors or your family members and to get intentional and just do it once. It can be as simple as dropping off a meal or even sending over a recipe. This is a great recipe. I was, think, I was thinking maybe we could try it. It could be as simple as babysitting, which isn't actually simple. I'm not a kid person, that's not simple that's hard work. (laughs) But it could be babysitting or or offering just to watch a kid for just a few minutes. It could just be keeping someone company. It could be if, if you're a student, it could be sitting at the lunch table with somebody who's usually lonely or inviting them to sit with you. It could be helping them carry something to class. It could be helping out your teacher with something, especially if it's a teacher who you know typically has a really hard time. It could be going over, and, and if we do get this snowfall that I'm really hoping we don't, it could be helping someone shovel their driveway or making sure that when you shovel that you keep your sidewalk clear as well. It could be lending something over to your neighbor, which I know is often really scary. But it could be offering to say, hey, do you want to borrow my snowblower for your driveway? Hey, can I, can I help you shovel? Hey, can I, can I carry up your package? I, it looks like you might be out of town today. Shoot him a text message or give him a call if, if you're at that level yet and say, hey, uh, you just got a package. Can I move it up to your porch? Whatever it might be. Brainstorming ahead of time, it actually helps us to recognize opportunities and response. I always think it's much easier for me to say, this week I'm definitely going to serve, but brainstorming an opportunity ahead of time where it's like, okay, if this happens this week, then I can, can actually help us to recognize the opportunities and serve each other. In the midst of these snowstorms these past few weeks, I, uh, I was reminded of this moment that I had when I was in seminary. That was a pretty sticky situation. Uh, and it actually, it had actually happened on a Sunday. Um, I had just spent time after church with some other people, uh, in our church community and, and we were watching a documentary together and having one of those like discussions. And I went to head home and, and I was a little bit cocky on the roads, which isn't unusual for me. And I, uh, I ended up in a ditch, right? (laughs) And at the time, I was supposed to meet up with a friend, and I texted him, and I was like, honestly, this, this excuse sounds too good to be true. I'm, I'm also chronically late, so I had to, like, make sure that he knew it was legit. I was like, this excuse sounds too good to be true, but, but I'm stuck in the ditch, and I, I can't get out, right? And all of my family, it was one of those weird weekends where, like, all of my family was up north, and so I'm like, this, like, girl in a, a Jeep, which sounds like it should be able to get out of the ditch, but it couldn't get out of the ditch. And literally, I step out, and the snow is, like, up to my knee, and I'm like... I'm never getting out of this one. And so I start thinking through and I start brainstorming and I'm like, okay, well, I have to call a tow company. So I call tow companies and they're like, we are backed up. It's the middle of a snowstorm. There's a lot of people in the ditch. Uh, We can probably get to you, you know, in like about two hours. And I'm like, two hours. And my exhaust was under the snow. And so I'm like, I know I probably shouldn't start my car. That feels dangerous, right? And so I start thinking about it and I end up calling our office admin at the time. And she has this husband who I swear like can do all things if it involves any like manual labor, right? And so I'm like, is there any chance that Tim's available? And she's like, not only is Tim available, but also our nephew's available. Where are you at? Send me the pin. I'll send him over. And so they show up and we're digging this sucker out, right? And then one of my friends, the friend I was supposed to meet, they show up and, and they're helping to dig it out. And in that moment, I felt so helpless. I mean, I literally was like, I think I was in these boots. And so I'm like, standing in the snow, and I'm like digging with my hands, right? Like there is no way I'm making any leeway, but these guys are digging it out, and then they're trying to pull it out, and it's taking a few times, and they just keep going and going. And in that moment, I thought, I have nothing to offer these people. I have nothing. I don't even have snacks for this moment. Like I have nothing to offer them, and I had to learn what it looks like to just sit back and be served, and it's a humbling moment for people. But let me tell you, after that time, our bonds together was so much stronger. Partially because we had this story, right, of this time in a snowstorm when you came and you had to dig me out and, you know, we, we accidentally stretched the cord or whatever happened. I don't know. Um, but we had this shared story, but we also had this shared moment where I had to embrace humility and they had to serve me. And there was nothing I could offer them in return. You're going to have moments this week or, or in the months to come when you have the opportunity to serve somebody who has nothing to offer in return to you. And it's going to be just as big of a humbling moment for them as it is for you. But in that moment, you follow the example of the great teacher who dropped everything to teach his disciples what it looked like for them to be served and loved and cared for. And when they started to push back and said, but Lord, you, you can't do this. But, but Lord, this isn't the right setting. But Lord, you, you can't take on the role of a servant, we should be washing your feet. You follow the example of a leader who stepped down from his position and actually embraced humility and washed their feet to show them what it looks like to be a part of a kingdom that's turned a little bit upside down. Just imagine if this week we treated serving with love as a commandment and not just a suggestion. Can you imagine how differently we would look at the world if we were like, I'm commanded today to go out and serve people? Can you imagine, especially if we served with love to those who are the most difficult to serve, who maybe are the most forgotten about in service in other places in the world? And imagine if we did that with our heart, not just our actions and minds. Imagine if as we did it, even if we weren't telling the greater story of who God was, in the moment we were reminding ourselves of the story of who God is and what God did and what he called us to, and we knew the story behind the actions we were doing. Imagine how much more meaningful it would be. And imagine if we did it because we understood who Jesus is, and we understood that in that moment that we had an opportunity eventually, maybe not even in this moment, but but maybe in 10 years, maybe in two months, maybe in a week, to point that person to a Lord who's not just sitting up on his throne, but is actually down and personal and serving those he loved. Imagine if we got to point to Jesus in a lonely, disconnected world and bring people into community. Imagine the impact that could ripple out from that. You see, I, uh, the other thing that I don't know a lot about is royals. I did see uh, that Queen Elizabeth has COVID, so be praying for her, right? But, but I don't know a lot about the royal world. Uh, the only thing I know is, like, I had a friend who went to St. Andrews at the same time as Kate Middleton, so it makes me feel famous, but... With the royal wedding happened a while ago, which is now kind of a little controversial, right? Because are they royals, are they not? Anyways, I, don't, I also don't know. I, see, it sounded like I knew that, but I actually, I don't know a lot about that. There was this sermon that was given, and the sermon that was given was by a guy named Bishop Michael Curry. And you might have watched the sermon because it basically went viral. It might be like one of the most popular sermons we've had in the te- past 10 years. And he spoke on the power that love can have in community. And he referenced this old gospel song that slaves used to sing to one another, And he said this, he said, There's a balm in Gilead that makes the whole world whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And he says, one of the stanzas actually explains why. They said, if you cannot preach like Peter, you cannot pray like Paul, you just tell the love of Jesus how he died to save us all. That's the balm in Gilead. That's the way that love is the way of life. They got it. He died to save us all. He didn't die for anything that he could get out of it. Jesus didn't get an honorary doctorate because he died. He wasn't getting anything out of it, but he gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the good of the other, and for the well-being of the world, he said. And he said, for us, that's what love is. It's not about what we can get out of it, but it's about what we can give and offer the world. And he said this, He said, think and imagine a world where love is the way. And this was in the middle of his sermon uh, to the entire world. He said, imagine our homes and our families if love was the way. Imagine our neighborhoods and our communities if love is the way. Imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine businesses and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this old, tired world when love is the way, when it's unselfish, it's sacrificial, and it's redemptive. He said, when love is the way, no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we'll let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness will look like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty becomes history. When love is the way, the earth is a sanctuary. See, we have an opportunity to love and serve a world that desperately needs it. And we get to do it. We don't have to do it, right? But we get to do it because Jesus showed us the way.